Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're talking about impact, leading change in the digital age. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify disruptive trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations into industry leaders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I'm delighted that Paul Gibbons is our guest today. Paul has a 40-year career straddling international business and academia. His consulting career, mostly in Europe, included founding an award-winning Teal organization development firm called Future Considerations. And by Teal, for those who aren't familiar with that term, it's uh, level five or strategist, referring to the level of developmental maturity of the leaders and the firm. Paul has coached dozens of CEOs on strategy, change, and talent issues. His change experience includes clients such as Comcast, Shell, PwC, BP, Barclays, KPMG, British Airways, HSBC, Nokia, The Body Shop, NHS, and UK Ministries. He was the change management lead on a billion-dollar program for the UK's Department of Work and Pensions. Paul has appeared in Microsoft's Distinguished Authors Program and at Google and appeared in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in England. So, Paul, you are amazingly accomplished, and I feel fortunate to consider you a friend. Thanks, Marie. Um, I always so, got a little, I always blush. You can't see me blushing. I always <laughs> blush when people read that much. Yeah, it is funny how we talk about ourselves and we don't always feel like that. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're going to talk about the session outcome. With great power comes great responsibility. Our spiritual evolution and collective wisdom struggle to keep pace with the power granted by our, our technological evolution. How are harnessing the good business does by scaling science for the benefit of humanity through creating communities where people can learn and contribute more than they could alone and by furthering human flourishing are among the noblest aims we can pursue. The future toward which business is leading us in 2030 is the backdrop to change. We have in our hands as citizens and as business leaders the power to do great good by pointing business toward our most inspirational and useful aims and leading these changes with passion and reason. So that's not a lot to accomplish in an hour. No, yeah, we got, we got nothing at all to talk about. <laughs> Plenty <here>. of time. <laughs> so, Paul, welcome. Thank you for joining us again as a returning guest to the program. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. i uh, so thrilled to be back. Uh, you know, I will tell you something funny is that, are you in Cincinnati? 
uh, Columbus. My and my book sales of the science of organizational change were, you know, obviously a lot in uh, New York and Los Angeles because they're population centers. But the biggest was in Ohio, and I have no idea really? why. I I, I kind of blame you. I, I don't know. I I did a couple of podcasts with Ohio people, but it's kind of funny the way things work. Anyway, yeah, it's not. You wouldn't think as an international person that Ohio would be your biggest audience. No kidding, right? Maybe we are the most change harbingers in the country. Maybe it's your leadership. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably not. I'd like to believe that. Um, so we, you talk about changes occurring, and and this is a theme for both of us, the idea that we live in a world where we have the biggest opportunity in the history of humans, probably, yep. to change the way we live and work in the world. Uh, yeah, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time. You know, the old um, Chinese uh, uh, word, <laughs> yeah. Chinese symbol, crisis and opportunity are the, the same sim- symbol or anyway, yes, we are. We are. Um, uh, I don't think governments are at all equipped to handle the disruptions to the future of work. I don't think we're prepared for 100 million jobs to be changed in the next decade, which is McKinsey's estimate. Uh, some people estimate there may be as many as 50 million jobs uh, lost. And to give listeners a perspective, 10 million jobs is a big recession, like 2008. So if we're talking about 50 million people who are be dislocated by these changes in the workforce, workplace, artificial intelligence and robotics, uh, you know, we're going to need government to be on the front foot and help of reskilling, upskilling supporting people as they relocate and change careers. I mean, there's going to be demand much more of government than than, than the globalization um, epidemic, if you want, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the 1990s. So anyway, that's that's that. Um, that's a backdrop to a book that's on change and change models and behavioral science. But yeah, that's the that's the context. So what is your latest book? Oh, it's called Impact. And uh, it starts with the technology and artificial intelligence and the, the mega trends that are affecting the globe and how CEOs need to respond to those. So it starts with a chapter on that. Uh, there's stuff on humanizing workplaces and change. I think that uh, stuff I'm really proud of and excited about. And then it goes into debunking some of the older change models, proposing some ways you could change them. And then a whole bunch on behavioral science and critical thinking, on influencing, in uh, particularly in, in uh I'll go into this maybe a little bit later, but in our contemporary uh, information glut culture and millennium millennial culture has also changed their expectations around the way we talk to them. So it's a big old book. Uh, I'm, you know, really thrilled with it. Uh, it's doing great. So anyway, I guess we could talk about that if you want. It's called, oh, and here's a mouthful. It's called Impact, uh, 21st Century Change Management, Behavioral Science, Digital Transformation and the Future of Work. Again, not much to take on, huh? Right. Well, <laughs> I always go, I set my, I set my sights big. Yeah. Well, and the thing I really appreciate, honestly, about your work, setting aside my uh, poor attempts at humor, is these are all intertwined. And by taking them on separately, we fail to address the complexity and the interconnection between each of these very important com- components. I like what you say. Yep, very much. And I know there's a push to simplify because we're all busy, but you talk about teal organizations and one of the 
characteristics we assign to that is thinking of Heifetz's term, a 360-degree thinker, that we are living in a time that is incredibly complex, and there may be simplicity beyond the complexity, but there's complexity, and by ignoring it or not metabolizing it or taking on one piece of it, I fail to address the, the things that are co- going to bite me later. Yes, indeed. Well, one of the problems with these new organization models, so in a very rigid hierarchical organization model, think of the stereotype of the army. It's not, it doesn't actually work this way. It's the stereotype of the military is information flows uh, downward and upward, but, you know, downward from the top. And, and, and it's very restricted by the hierarchy, you know, chain of command. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. So now we're in models, say, take some holacracy kind of model, right? Where information flows are incredibly more complex and fluid. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing for innovation. It's a good thing for people connecting with one another. It's a good thing for collaboration. It's a good thing for employee engagement. There's lots of goodies there. But what it also does is because there's not the rigidity of the hierarchy, you get this situation which... Uh, they call in media studies information glut. Basically, they've got you've got emails not just coming from your boss and your team. You've got them coming from all over, uh, and you know that contributing to a problem that we all see because we're drowning we're drowning in information at the moment. So that's one of the themes of the book. Beautiful. So let's jump into our actual script and feel free to to deviate. So so you talk about technology driven change. Um, so how has technology-driven change led to changes in the workplace, culture, and mindset? Uh, well, you've been around, good God help you, not as long as me. <laughs> um, uh, almost. <laughs> I'm 59. Uh, oops. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so, so technology-driven change has been with us, uh, you know, obviously for a few hundred years. So we have to think, okay, well, what's special about today? Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about the Industrial Revolution, I'm talking about the Microchip Revolution, I'm talking about the Steam Revolution, I'm talking about the Assembly Line Revolution in the United States. We can talk a lot about a lot of technologically driven change in the workplace technologies and just So that's always with us. So what's happening today? Well, today we have a sort of cultural attention deficit disorder. We are so deluged in so much information. You know, a a UCLA study said that we read the equivalent of 174 newspapers a day. That's how much incoming we have. And that's more than someone 100 years ago would read in a lifetime. So that's pretty wild, right? A lot of information. And the problem is that data is traveling. I mean, a a boat or a, a, you know, matter, uh, physical things travel as fast, you know, as they did hundred years ago, right? Um, you know, more or less within an order of magnitude, but data, the exchange of information is traveling millions of times faster. We're talking about gigabytes and terabytes and petabytes and exabytes and yottabytes. And all of that information hits an information processor, that, that squishy thing inside our head, which works at the same speed as it did 10,000 years ago. So if you can picture like a fire hose or a, or a garden hose or something like that, there's this massive constriction as all this information hits our brains. What do we do with all of that? How do we process all of that? How do we parse it? How do we detect garbage such as, you know, fake news and corporate disinformation? Uh, so, so that's part of what makes today special. And that's unlike 
that information world, that information age or the digital age, as it's sometimes called, is unlike any of these previously uh, previous technological eras, if you will. So there's that. Um, and, and, and then today, uh, with all this information coming at us, um, lots of it from social media, half of um, people now get their news on social media. So just process that for a minute. So you get your news not from Fox or CNN or MSNBC or NPR, the New York Times. You get it first from social media where you click on something that a friend has shared with you. So that's an interesting thing. And that turns to people who are used to be passive receivers of information, the so-called audience, into what's called prosumers. We are producing news as well as um, receiving news. So if I see an article, I, I, I share it. But the question is, is do we have the critical thinking skills and the, you know, journalists are incredibly original. What's the source? Is there a second source? What's the quality of the evidence? Can we verify this? They have a lot of skills in seeing through BS, and we as uh, human consumers don't yet have that. So that's the kind of information backdrop to this technological change in the workplace. Um, It's a fascinating subject. So at this point, let's go on break. Thank you for describing that. And as we are on break, I would encourage our listeners to think about what are the biggest changes you're consuming? What are your challenges? And how has the volume of information that Paul described changed how you live your life? We'll be right, again, big questions to think about in a couple of minute break, but we really want to get, um, we invite you as our listeners to interact with the content and think about how this is applying in your life. We'll be right back with Paul and Maureen talking about his new book, Impact. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. 
Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. And Co-Creating Our Future seems like a relevant topic right now as we're talking to Paul Gibbons about his book, Impact, and dealing with disruption in leadership and organizations as we look forward. And interestingly, this is out to 2030, but it's also a 2020. So, Paul, you talk about how uh, can organizations rework their everyday change models that we in the past have navigated through managing and leading change in a certain way with a pace of change with everything upended, how do those models fall short and what do you recommend to shift them? Well, uh, the old-fashioned change models from the 1990s and before Cotter, Connor, ProSci, they were never a complete answer. And anyone who's a change artisan, people like yourself and, you know, people who are practitioners, uh, use them very loosely, if at all. But now they're badly dated. Um, So... What do we need from our change models? We need them to work in managers' hands and not specialists. You don't. You want changes what the people are doing day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Little reorganizations and hiring people and new product launches and something like that. It's not like it's oh, all of a sudden we're good, we were we were we were stable for the last ninety days, but now here's a change. It's just it's not like that. That was that was those models were derived derived around that paradigm, and organizations are always changing. So. We need managers to be equipped, and this speaks to management education as well, but they also need to know, have change models that they can use themselves. And they don't need to, as I say in the book, hire overpricedchangegurus.com to, uh, to, uh, to execute change. Beautiful. I, I agree. And if you don't know it yourself, there's still value in having those gurus upskill you so that you can navigate it rather than, as you say, I'm going to do my work and those people in the change department are going to go off and make sure everything works well. It's now everybody. Yes. And and the job for us is more of an organization development and an upskilling kind of uh, role in the world that I'm imagining and less coming into firefight when, um, if I can be vulgar, the shit hits the fan. Uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and a lot of the change work I think I've done and maybe a lot of you've done too is when things have gone very poorly and we're called in to try and, you know, put oil on troubled change waters. Is that correct? Is that your experience also? It is part of my experience, but I also had the good fortune of being engaged at the beginning of large engagements. Now, the change stuff is the stuff that gets cut first because you can't cut out the hardware and software. Yeah. But many of our clients continue to make at least an investment and for large rollouts across multinational companies, when they recognize that the cost of actually getting the thing running so they could pull the implementation team from site one to site two or whatever the variation was, Mm. the more proactive they were in the change piece up front, the quicker they got their high impact people and the quicker they were to realize the value they were investing in. Yeah. So, so I have seen it work both ways and I've been involved in both. Yep. 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 And to, uh, your, to your point, mm. the, the ones where we were most proactive, the back to, you want to get your high price change people out as quick as possible and have your leaders of the organization actually lead the organization. So it's where the change is built in to go organic as quickly as possible 
those are the ones that produce the higher ROI. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sometimes I'm known for saying, and this really sometimes annoys people, is, is a lot of the work that change specialists sometimes do is to uh, make up for leadership and management shortfalls in the organization. I say, imagine someone who's great at resolving conflict and great at inspiring a team and great at creating a vision, great at, uh, you know, great at agile, great at all of the skills that, are, uh, that I think people ought to learn in business school. If they're great at that, do they need as much support, as much heavy lifting from the change team? And the answer is, I don't think so. No. You know, one of the things that we talk about, and it's the reason we named our organization the Innovative Leadership Institute, is I've worked with so many people who are really good at leading what they've led, but they're not updating their internal thinking about leadership and transformation at the same rate that technology is changing what they're leading. So we now know that brains work differently than we thought. We know people engage differently than we thought even 10 years ago. So if I am, as a leader, I'm not updating my own internal algorithm about what good leadership looks like, I am likely to be the one impeding the very progress I'm trying to lead. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Before we move on for this, I just want to mention two big concepts like super duper briefly. So the, the, the question is to bring li- listeners back to the question is what's wrong with the change management paradigm and what's wrong with the old fashioned models and tools, the Cotter, the ProSide, the Connor and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Culture is an afterthought. So culture is part of a change problem. So the eighth of Cotter's eight steps is something to do with culture. And in many of the other change models, they don't mention it at all. So Culture is uh, a critical priority, um, and this is kind of paradoxical. It's too important to be stuck underneath a change project. Like, it's something that needs to be happening all the time. As such, and as Ella says, the CEO, the C stands for culture. Um, and that's going to be a priority uh, that's much bigger than individual change initiatives, is getting a culture, which I use the metaphor sometimes of a garden, where the soil is rich for innovation, for change, for personal growth and development, for strategy implementation, and all of that. So that's not part, is more important than a single change project. So that's one thing. And the second thing is um, resistance to change. If you think about someone that you trust really a lot, right? Someone that you, you know, um, yeah, someone that you have, you know, unconditional trust in or something. If they say, there's a change coming at you. Uh, I haven't had a chance to discuss it with you before or involve you terribly much in it, but you know, I, I want I want us to do this. If you trust them, you'll tend to you'll tend to not resist. And mm-hmm. I I, t- I talk about trust as the kind of the resistance anti venom. Um, if you don't trust someone at all, even a change that's beneficial can be viewed with suspicion. They'll suspect your motives or your you know, things. Is that, you know, is, I mean, just I think listeners could check their intuition, right? If someone that you don't like as a politician proposes something uh, that could possibly be good for you, but you don't trust them, you'll always suspect ulterior motives. And so, so if you have a trust, you lessen the need to do a lot of interventions to uh, workshops and so forth to uh, overcome resistance. Uh, and if you don't have trust, you know, very little of what you do is going to make a difference anyway. So uh, that those are two, I think, big points, trust and culture that I wanted to kind of get into this segment. How are we doing on time? I think we've got a couple more minutes. And I think that the 
comment about trust being the anti-venom is absolutely brilliant. I've not heard it used in that term, but I agree that multiple concurrent changes require us to trust the people who are leading us. Uh, otherwise, it just we're not going to get there. Yeah. It's hard to say something new about change. I do try. <laughs> you know, there are thousands of books on change and leadership. So I try and come up with some new ideas, some new metaphors, some new things in my books. I don't know if I always succeed, but. So in the next couple of minutes in this segment, why don't you tell our listeners what is unique about your constructs and why should they listen to you versus someone else? And we've got four minutes till break. Uh, all right. Well, um, I've not always been popular with the, the change community because I I really take down, and particularly in this new book, the Cotter change model. And I and I, and I take it down in the following way: I'm saying it was really good in the 1990s, and I bought that book for thousands. Of, literally, I've said to executives, "I want you to buy a copy of this for your whole team, you know, your whole organization, 200 books." So I've sold a lot of books. They're just not up to date right now. And there's a lot of people who have a lot invested in learning those models, and they're not always things. So that's the first thing that I think read, listeners, readers would get for the book was was a sort of like, why are those poor? One of the other sort of, so what's better? And one of the things that I spend a lot of time on, uh, there are two full chapters on it, is behavioral science. And that, I think, is the biggest breakthrough in change thinking, you know, certainly in the last 10 or 10 or 10 years, maybe systems thinking was the biggest one in the 1990s. And now we have behavioral science is the biggest one today. So that's what people can expect to learn about. And I've tried to make behavioral science really practical. You know, it's all very well to say, oh, all you need to do is uh, read Dan Ariely's book or Thinking Fast and Slow or, or one of those books. But very few authors, I don't think, have yet have shown how to apply behavioral science to leading change. So I hope I've done that. So can you give us in the interview the one-minute summary, which I realize is a tall order. What For someone who isn't familiar with behavioral science, what do, how do you deploy that to help lead change? Well, when you... The way we normally lead change is we influence people. We try and change their hearts and minds, right? Mm-hmm. So, so first of all, that's super hard to do, right? Yeah. Someone who's committed to something, persuasion is, is difficult. And it... Our modern techniques work unless they really care about it. And if they care about it, changing their minds is extremely difficult. So that's one thing. And so even if you do change their mind and you inspire them and you influence them and you persuade them, there's no guarantee that behaviors are going to follow. Because, as we all know, our behaviors and beliefs don't always line up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, doctor may persuade me that I need to lose 30 pounds, right? I won't necessarily be able to do so, right? You may persuade someone that they need to spend 30 minutes a week coaching their staff so that they create a developmental team, a deliberately developmental team, I think some authors call it. That's very well. You can, they can see the value of it, but their behaviors may not follow. So the game in change is changing behaviors, right? Not hearts, mm-hmm. and, not hearts yeah. and minds. Yep. Yeah. So uh, maybe we want to pick that up after the break because it's such an important point. Are we coming to the end of our thing? We are. um, And and I would like to go into more practical application of this so that our listeners walk away with something that they can do tomorrow beyond buy your book. I got some some good stuff. I got some good stuff. Great. So, So this is Maureen Metcalf and Paul Gibbons. We're talking about impact, the acceleration of change, and how 
you as leaders can influence the success of your change initiatives. We'll be right back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership co-creating our future to reach maureen metcalf or her guest today please call 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 or send an email to info at innovative leadership now back to this week's program Welcome back to Innovating Leaders, Co-Creating Your Future. You are with Maureen Metcalf and Paul Gibbons, and we're talking about Paul's latest book, Impact. And before the break, we were talking about how behavioral science in business plays a part in increasing the effect of leading change and transforming organizations. So, Paul, can you give us more about this? And specifically, for leaders who are listening, what can they do? So, so we were we were on behavioral science, and so I think this has been the biggest breakthrough, probably in change in the 21st century, is the stuff on behavioral science. So, we talked about the gap between influencing people and then hoping that behaviors change. You know, you kind of cross your fingers, like okay. Uh-huh. Um, and there's really interesting research from medicine that says only seven percent of people who have a heart attack change their behaviors. That's quite astonishing if you think about it. You think that that would be enough emotional input to have them change their mind. So anyway, what's a better way of changing behaviors? Well, behavioral science methods short circuit hearts and minds and go straight to the behaviors. So, so, so I don't have like? to change my heart and mind. I can just start doing stuff differently. You can, and here's and and, and here and here's how that works. You can think your way into a new way of acting. But you can also act your way into a new way of thinking. So change my behavior changes the neural pathways, yes. changes the habits and routines. Well, and think then, about how often you wanted 
think about how often you've wanted to exercise. You not wanted to go, oh, I don't really want to go to the gym or something like that. But you go and you you feel wonderful afterwards. So in a sense, the the good feeling doesn't happen and the motivation doesn't happen before. It sort of happens afterwards, if you know what I mean. So if you take people who have a running habit or a, or a meditation habit or something like that, they're not in a constant debate with themselves about the value of it or anything like that. They have a habit. That's a behavioral thing. And if you see people who are habitual runners or meditators or whatever your practice might be or something like that, it's not their motivation goes up and down, right? Some days you feel it, some days you don't. But if you have a habit, your motivation is sort of irrelevant. If does that make it, sort it of, does? Yeah. yeah. I, in fact, was talking to a client about this this morning and the routines and how hard it is once you break your routine to get back in that habit. And yeah. and in in this case, it's leadership coaching. And so the question is, how do we change your habits? Yes, and and, that, and that's a huge question. So there's a couple of really practical techniques. So one really practical technique is a mini habit, and this is going to sound absurd, but could you let's take meditation? Could you meditate for a minute a day? Yes, and re- you could, right? And that's mm-hmm. uh, set yourself a very small goal. So could you ex- Could you walk for five minutes a day? You know, maybe you want to maybe you want to become a runner or maybe do a couch to 5K or something like that. You start with something called a mini habit. And what that does is it allows you to build the habit and then you can expand and grow on that. So that's a very practical sort of way. Another way is do something like a 10 day challenge. So if you're working with somebody who's supposed to be coaching staff, you say, "Okay, this is not a life sentence, but you're going to do it every day for the next 10 days. Every day for the next 10 days, you're going to do X. And then after that, we'll review. So you're really focusing. You don't care if they want to do it or not, right? What you're focusing on is getting the behavior in place, and then you find the value later on. So that's, those are two little habit change tips. Hey, and you bring up exercise. That's certainly something I've started to do the many. I thought I was going to do push-ups, but boy, I am not as strong as I thought. So it started with a very low number, and and now over time is is closer to what I'd like it to be, and it did. It started with a few minutes while I was watching a TV show in the background. Yeah, exactly. It, it, I, there's no reason I can't. And now you're all and now you're all buffed. Uh, well, yeah, probably not. Um, <laughs> but but the number's much higher. And it's easier, but you're right there. I have no motivation. Well, I don't have any, dis- it, I don't like doing push-ups, but yes. I'm going to do them anyway because yes. I, I have more upper body strength and I think that's important for skiing. And we have that with kids, you know, if your kids, you know, are practicing the violin, I had to explain to my kids like, oh, the violin's no fun. Yeah, of course it's no fun. You suck, right? <laughs> yeah. when, when you When you get good. When, when, when you achieve a mod- modicum of competence, you'd be able to start to make more beautiful music. So, and in fact, the fun part comes next. But in our society, we are so, in, so geared towards instant gratification, we expect the fun first. Um, so um, before we miss out on this, there's a really practical framework called mind space in the book. Okay, and, so and this is more. a behavioral change framework uh, developed by the UK government for use in public policy that a few organizations are starting to use. So Mindspace is, tells us something about, um, about influencing behavioral change. So Mindspace stands for messenger, 
incentives, norms, defaults, salience, priming, affect, commitments, and ego. Okay, what is all that? It's a word salad, right? But let's take, for example, uh, let's take messenger. So when they try and, try and change behaviors uh, of women who are susceptible to getting pregnant when they're teenagers, for example, something like that, you can have a doctor or a social worker or someone come in and give them a lecture. But what's much more effective is have someone who's like them, mm-hmm. a 17-year-old 17, a 17 who's walked the walk. Well, I mean, when I'm talking about more effective, I'm talking about like 10 times more effective. Uh, so what do we learn from that from, that we can use in, in change is that we don't always want to have the chief executive or the senior vice president or something like that. Very often, someone who's walked the walk and been the journey themselves has learned to use the system or has learned to coach staff. They'll be much more effective at influencing than someone who's sort of a quote-unquote external expert. So that's one little lesson from Mindspace. Um, and, and it's really at the forefront of behavioral science, and it's really practical. So, It seems like a very reasonable thing. And what you talked about earlier is trust. I trust someone who looks like me. Yes. Right. Research says we trust people who look like us, whether they are... Yes. Not physiologically, but they're in the same situation. They've done the same thing. Yeah. You've written a book. I've written a book. We can talk about writing a book. We can. Someone to coach me about writing a book who's never written a book, I'm, I'm going to discount them entirely. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, so that's one thing is the messenger is who communicates the information tends to matter more than it what. There's another thing, for example, a behavioral intervention that works, which is using opt-ins instead of opt-outs. So you've probably run across this. If you're a shopper, you have to uh, take organ donation for something. If you have to opt into organ donation when you get your driver's license, you go, ew, <laughs> if you're like me, right? But if you have to opt out, about 90% of the people will go for organ donation if you have to opt out. And there's about 10% if you have to opt in. So you know how simple a tweak that is? That's changing one word in the checkbox. But Mm -hmm. what can we we learn from that? Because that's super high leverage and change. If you think about it, we've made all the expensive information uh, uh, interventions that we can run. Here we've made a teeny tweak to the wording and we go from 10% to 90% take up. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. So we've got about four minutes left. Can you give us either a little more on opt-in, opt-out, or one other recommendation, and then we'll wrap up the show by uh, letting summarizing your book and also letting listeners know where to contact you. Uh, so what's another really super cool thing that's in the book, uh, leaving mind space behind? Um, let's see. Uh, one of the other, um, so one of the other behavioral interventions that's really powerful is, uh, for example, airlines want to save fuel, right? It's one of their mm-hmm. biggest costs, right? And the pilots have a lot of influence on fuel usage, just like a driver who floors it, you know, is going to get worse gas mileage than one who drives more sedately. Well, that applies to pilots too, although they're not, you know you know, doing donuts in the parking lot and, you know, messing Mm -hmm. around, but they have discretion over fuel use. So how do you change their behavior? So they're more conscious about fuel use and save yourself a thing. Well, Delta Airlines did an an experiment and they did a six week experiment and they saved, I think, I 
think I can't remember, it $110 million in fuel or something like that. And just now here, how did they do that? Well, there was some, uh, it was a scientific experiment. So there were some people that were in an education program, some pilots. But what they found was, is just by engaging pilots in the conversation, just by um, involving them in uh, methods to save fuel, they were tremendously effective. And so that's an example of uh, behavioral intervention, again, that's very low cost. And so I guess that's one of the takeaways is that, you know, uh, if we're struggling, you know, we have an opportunity to kind of rethink some of our assumptions about how we lead change. So there you go. That's my little piece. So thank you for giving the example of airline pilots and, and the idea that we change our thinking and change our assumptions. Do you want to build anything on that? Because I realize uh, we are um, kind of truncating some very interesting ideas. I, I made a list of how I think uh, change models need to evolve, which is uh, in one of the chapters in the book. And at the very end of the book, I, I talk about the future of change management. And if I were to read through each of those elements, there could probably be a paragraph or a book. But why don't I read a couple of them and you maybe which one your listeners will select one that your listeners will uh, might find most interesting. Cool. So uh, I said develop models and tools that work in managers' hands, putting culture first, learn to use evidence and data, stories aren't proof, and the plural of anecdote isn't data. Learn Agile. You may not become an Agilista, but Agile methods are here to stay, and they have a lot of cool built-in change management methodologies, as our specialists will recognize. Learn to use technology to engage stakeholders. So used to use Slack and Microsoft Teams for constant engagement and not periodic engagement. What's periodic engagement? It's a workshop or it's a training course or it's an email or it's some sort of communication thing. But constant engagement is you're talking to them all the time. Uh, you want to go? Yeah, I, I hear. I hear a question coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there an order of priority? I, I, my assumption is from how you've talked, we have to put tools in the hands of managers. Period. That's not optional. Yeah. Is there one, or are there one or two tools that you think are the highest impact, or is it really you have to get it all right? Uh, no, I mean, I think behavioral science can huge breakthroughs. If you're done with banging your head against a wall, trying to change pe- what people think and feel and do or something like that, you know, take a course in, in behavioral science and learn a few of the things you can do that make your life much, much simpler there. I would say that's, that's, a, that's the killer app for change as far as I'm concerned. So can I read your book and learn some of what I do in, in behavioral science rather than taking a course? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, what a good question, Maureen. Thank you. Um, You know, I don't think there's a course out there for change practitioners on behavioral science. A lot of the insights come from marketing. So you can take courses in marketing and sales that use behavioral science. But we've been slow in the change world to pick up behavioral science and learn to use that to change hearts and minds and behaviors inside organizations. I think it's interesting if I if I think about how do marketing and salespeople change how we behave. There is a, a strong science behind that, and and there are a robust sets of tools because yeah, if you're in sales and you get paid on selling, you have to figure it out. Uh, yeah, but think about online marketing. You know, think about um, 
So what's a decoy? So sometimes if you want to buy someone, people always pick the middle one. So what you do is you make the middle one expensive and you put something next to it that's really, really expensive. So they think, oh my God, that's a hell of a deal. So if you look at like if there's ever options and all of your listeners will have that and there'll be three options when you're signing up for some product on a website, right? Mm -hmm. Product or service, right? And then there'll be, the middle one will be like best value. And what they do is use behavioral science is very important here is they make the other ones look like super unattractive. Like one's really devoid of features and one's really, really, and what they're doing is, or or take this popcorn at the the movie theater. If you order a, a medium popcorn at the movie theater and they say, would you like to make that a large for a quarter more? Yeah. Now the extra quarter is free money for them because popcorn costs nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. You, hey, a quarter more. Sure. What the heck? You know? So uh, it'll all go to my waistline anyway. So um, it's, there's lots of little things that marketing and salespeople are super duper good at that we need to learn to do more and change, I think. So should every manager who is running a department, managing a, a portion of the organization, I'm making the assumption every organization is currently or will be in the next six months going through some level of change. Should all of our managers become change proficient? Yeah. Okay. Well, so the, the, what, the, the question turns on what do we mean by proficient? Um, you know, if you think about the content of an MBA, right, and you think about what managers do day in and day out, a lot of their headaches have to do with getting change to happen. And so it's bizarre to me that an MBA contains nothing on change. And I kind of know because I've taught in a lot of MBAs and they, mm-hmm. got, they got nothing on change. So I think one of my big sort of takeaways, and this is a kind of an institutional takeaway, not a personal takeaway, is business education needs to be completely reinvented so that it's of practical value as well as theoretical value. And all that theoretical stuff on strategy and finance, it's all good stuff for something like that. But we also need stuff that people can use day in and day out because managing groups of people uh, through change is pretty difficult sometimes. And it's especially difficult if you don't know what you're doing. You know, it's interesting, and this is only a slight deviation, often my courses are the only leadership courses yeah. that, that MBA, program, the ones I've taught in, I'm the only one and I'm an elective. So a very small percentage of the MBA programs I've taught in have even leadership, so they're certainly not doing change yeah. management. And at Harvard, same thing. Uh, there's like 110 electives. I went out and counted them or something like that, and there's one that has the word change in the title. I'm like, for real? You know, uh, so I think business schools are way behind the curve on on many of these sort of super practical, on the application of business, right? And it's interesting because business is a really practical discipline, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not a theoretical pursuit. It's not philosophy. It's not mathematics. It's not art history. It's really practical. You're doing stuff day in and day out. So why is management education so theoretical? And that's a very good question that no one's been able to answer uh, satisfactorily to me. So it does raise the question, if I am a business leader, how do I get good at managing and leading? So the change management, the very tactical parts, and the leading, the longer term visionary, understanding how multiple changes integrate together to to deliver our strategy. It, It seems like leaders and managers should be at a minimum reading your book and putting into practice, not just understanding and being able to talk about it, but doing 
very specific tactics that you talk about in your book. Well, we should, you and I should cook up a two-day course, shouldn't we? Oh, that would be interesting. That would be fun, wouldn't it? No, I, I, there's, there, there are, I mean, there are some good things out there. Um, uh, I don't think a great deal of change certification programs. I think they're very, very old school. Um, but there's, you know, there's good stuff in some of those. Um, if you take the Cotter model, for example, like that, well, I've been very keen to debunk it, you know, is vision, engaging, uh-huh. engaging people, um, having a plan defining success. I mean, all of those kind of basics are very good, but you, you can learn that if you're sort of nine years old, you can learn what those words mean. But the question that you need to answer for leaders to help them with is, how do you create a vision? All right, you say I got to have one. Okay, so how do I do that? You know, do I go alone and do a smoke some ayahuasca? Or I don't even know if people smoke ayahuasca. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know if people smoke it. I think you eat it. I'm showing my ignorance and my age. But you know, how do I create a vision? You know, I know I'm supposed to do that. Well, it doesn't take long to teach people to do that, um, and that's something they need to know how to do. How do I engage multiple stakeholders? Okay, well, let's teach you how to do that. It's it's not rocket science, but it's incredibly difficult if you don't know what you're doing. How do I resolve conflict? You know, these sort of super basic stuff, you mm-hmm. know, need to be the tools that people have day in and day out that they're able to do, I think. Well, and there are some good books like Crucial Conversations that actually gives tactics to make those things happen. And then there are a lot of books that people can talk about it but they don't actually understand tactics. And I realize we're in the three-minute window. So do you want to summarize the overall message of your book as we're wrapping up? Oh, gosh. How do you summarize 280 pages in a second? You know, uh, I just loved writing it. It got me into the future of work and artificial intelligence. It got me into some technological stuff. And it's really funny, the things I'm getting asked to speak about right now are the future of work and something that comes up in the book called Humanizing Business. That's kind of really weird. Like you write the book and you don't really know what people are going to ask you to talk about. Mm -hmm. And and so there's all this good stuff, I think, unchanged, but a lot of people are asking me to speak about the technological stuff up front. But anyway, uh, so that's that. The book's called Impact. You can find me at paulgibbons.net. I have an earlier book called The Science of Organizational Change. That's volume one of Leading Change in the Digital Age, and Impact is volume two of Leading Change in the Digital Age. But I think all your listeners bought it because there's nothing else would explain the sales that I had in Ohio and Columbus. (laughs) Well, and and for anyone who did not hear Paul's interview before, there is an interview on his first book. And interestingly, we have often more listeners outside of the U.S. than inside the U.S. No way, really. Yeah, really. Yeah, we're at about, depends on when this airs, about 40,000 listens a month. And a very global audience. So the global thing is kind of funny because last week I did an interview at one in the morning and one at three in the morning. One was with Japan and one was with India. And so they send me some times and they don't, I suppose, know where I live. And I'm like, oh, okay, what, three in the morning? I'll get up and drink some coffee. And (laughs) so our global world, that's one of the challenges that managers in global organizations face today is, of course, the time thing is doing doing work at one in the morning or three in the morning. So I, I thought it was kind of fun and neat, but... I wouldn't like to live my life like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And I want to add a couple thoughts, and we are in the the last minute of the interview. So summarizing part of what I heard is expert practitioners can lead the way to help 
managers and leaders learn the skills to implement change, and all of us need to learn that. And we can draw from behavioral science and marketing and other arenas to help people actually change their behaviors and let their hearts and minds catch up later. I think that was one of my major takeaways is, you know, I've said more to people now than I used to, you don't have to like it. For a while, you just have to do it, and and then we'll revisit if it still doesn't make sense. Fake it, fake it until you make it. They sometimes it, say. Yeah, uh, yeah. Me and the push-ups. I don't like it. I'm doing it anyway. That's part of being an adult, and and a successful leader and manager. Not just push-ups. That's an easy thing to talk about. But some of the things we do in leadership aren't fun. So I'm going to wrap up with the the invite to our listeners. One, thank you so much for listening to this show. I trust that you learned something from Paul about implementing transformation, especially in a digital era, that you can put into practice very quickly in your work. And I, I do invite you to email me or email Paul, share with us what you're putting in practice and how it's working. I would love to hear your feedback. Either connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message that you listen to our show and I will accept your invite or find us on Facebook, Innovating Leadership or email me at info at innovateleader.com. Thank you very much for listening and we hope that you join us again soon. And if you haven't heard Paul's interview about his first book, look him up under authors, Paul Gibbons, or, or guests, Paul Gibbons, and listen to his the precursor to this book. Thank you very much and enjoy your day. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.